0: Welcome back to ICU Life and Recovery. My name is Mark and I am the host. And today I am here with Dr. Julie Heifel, who is a consultant clinical psychologist for adult and pediatrics in the ICU setting. She is the National Project Director for Wellbeing for the Intensive Care Society and is a trustee for ICU Steps, which is a group which provides peer support for ICU survivors as well as family. And welcome, Julie, if there's anything else you wanted to add there.
1: No, that's probably the best summary I've had of anyone introducing me. So you you nailed it. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So today we're going to have a discussion of someone at the start of their their journey to becoming a a psychologist and yourself, the established psychologist, and me as the patient who has received psychological care post-ICU. So I just wanted to first thing ask you is, what do you think is the most important reason to have psychologists embedded in the ICU team?
1: Good question. Good I think the reality is the ICU experience is a psychologically challenging one for everyone. It's challenging for the patient. It's challenging for their loved ones. It's challenging for the staff, although sometimes they're quite hardened to it and would say that it isn't. And the psychologist is there to try to reduce that challenge and manage that challenge with and alongside. I think that's our most important role. We're, We're not Kind of people that you send people off to. We have to be up alongside those patients, their loved ones, those staff members, helping them manage and mitigate those psychological uh, outfalls of the ICU environment and the ICU stay.
0: I was in a very small ICU unit. So we have five beds. So about as small an ICU as you can get. So we didn't have fancy things. We had physios, we had nurses, and we had medical doctors and that was our sort of core treatment team but i certainly from looking at my experience see the clear potential benefits because as i went down the stream less so in icu because i w- I pretty much woke up from my coma and then a day or two later i was stepped down so there wasn't a lot of time in icu where i was awake enough to be aware enough that i had problems but in my downstream i had definitely had terrible eh, depressive Issues and probably towards the end of it, maybe even at the start of H2 stage, where were symptoms of PTSD. Mm. And I think that those festered. The depressive incident was seen in hospital by the psychiatric services, but that was only able to be accessed because my infectious disease consultant is a very important person within the trust and, and was able to essentially strong arm to get treatment from them. But that's not acceptable and I think that a psychologist involved in the ICU team and involved in the care pathway down is it's not just about treatment it's about identifying that the problem is there and knowing that these problems are a potential because in high dependency which I would have expected to be very aware of what the ICU patient coming down is like I had a very vivid flashback that made me feel very unsafe and very agitated and very anxious. And I was essentially told it was all in my head and that I should just go back to sleep. That's probably the worst step we can get because that breaks any trust that was there because there's no longer that. And I think the psychologist plays a key role in that we wouldn't send people downstream without nurses we wouldn't send them downstream if there was no medical doctors. We wouldn't send ICU patients down if there was no physio. It seems like we've got a four-legged chair and we're happy for it to have three legs. And then we wonder why everybody keeps falling.
1: That's, that's a good way of putting it.
0: Looking up from the bed, which is how, how I, I explain it, is it seems very stupid to me. It seems very straightforward. And I know that a big part of it is money and that money doesn't grow on trees and we don't have infinite money. But that money cost is going to be saved in the fact that you're not going to have super developed mental health conditions that are much harder to, to effectively treat much later on when the anxiety is is bad or the PTSD is bad or, or or worse when we get to a point where there's a loss of life because of that sort of psychological neglect in the patient. And because there, there were certainly times where it was very dark for me. Yeah. And it's just it just seems like an obvious thing and it seems much like having a nurse having a physio having a medic these are all kind of core components and we just go we'll just we'll just give them delirium and then cope because in some icus we're talking 90% delirium other places we're talking 40% but that's still four in 10 people are getting left with delirium which leaves psychological burdens of one description or another in most cases and we're just okay with that. And it seems like a very strange I wasn't even really aware that psychologists could help with this until I got to my post-ICU clinic, of which I'm very fortunate that it existed. That that's not an and I find this when I when I'm I'm in ICU steps, I hear so many people that didn't didn't get this. So I I think that I got pretty much the best care that was possible and I'm not saying that it was bad care I think it was brilliant they saved my life it was brilliant but that doesn't mean we can't approve and, and we shouldn't we shouldn't go oh this is good therefore that's fine because we would be sitting in caves with candles if we thought like that we have to we have to <laughs> light bulbs are better than candles you know we we, we move exactly. on um just because candles are good doesn't mean we should stop at candles
1: exactly
0: and you you were talking about your role with staff and i think that that's that's often forgot about and particularly from patients because we quite often get centered in our own our own world our own bubble of of problems and i think it's very easy to forget that it's quite traumatic to work in icu yeah i
1: mean i i think it, i go back to that comment that you were told of of just it's all in your head and I think sometimes what can happen is people work in ICU and they get so desensitized to the patient experience and you know the, the common phrase is dehumanizing the patient experience that they then can say something like that which is I think well intended to say don't worry Mark you're safe it's all in your head but it didn't You didn't hear it like that. Actually, what you heard was this kind of dismissive, we don't believe you, actually. And, you know, I think the thing that I would say about delirium in ICU is sadly wouldn't say it's inevitable, but it's so common, it feels like, and it's so complicated, it's going to happen. It's going to happen to most people. And delirium is, you know, we know from Dorothy Wade's work, delirium is the biggest predictor of post-ICU psychological problems, but it's specifically distress that links to the delirium. And I think the really key thing that a psychologist can lead on and push in the ICU is that we approach delirium differently and we put something in that's much more preventative so you know there are great physios speech therapists OTs out there who are really psychologically minded who are on board with this but that's not their natural training and you know that's more about personality so you can't predict for that but psychologists are trained to go in there and as a psychologist I would have said to you Mark how awful that you're feeling this way you know but do you know that this is actually common? Do you know that this is something temporary and it's not going to last? And it doesn't mean you're going mad. But don't worry, you're here, you're safe, we're looking after you. And it's kind of leading that kind of attitude around delirium because people, like you say, that the trust goes because people can be quite paranoid in delirium. You know, I, I describe it to staff as your body's defence mechanism is up physiologically because of what you've been through. So actually your psychological defences are up to. So you're you're kind of looking to see, am I in a good place here? And in the in-between of the medications and the environment, et cetera, your brain fills in the gap and usually comes up with something that is uncertain and unsafe unless the staff change that experience for you and it's that change of experience where the staff members in that kind of step down HDU most most ICUs and HDUs are together nowadays in a whole critical care so that's is it's a good thing because it's critical care staff is still on hand but actually it's a mixed thing because I think HDU staff used to be better at this when it was HDU Now they're all mixed together, you will get staff who identify as being more HDU, more rehab focused, more person centred and staff who are very hyper acute, love the ICU, love the machines, love the technicality of it and struggle a little bit with this human touch. And connection. And I think that kind of key role for psychology is, is humanizing throughout that. But also within, as, as you quite rightly identified, within that humanizing, it's also helping the staff to see the how they're coping with this environment where they walk alongside more trauma than anyone really will experience. You know, it's places like, I guess, potentially, you know, the AE emergency units, et cetera, that will experience. Kind of close comparisons, but we see so much devastation. We can't walk in the rain and not expect to get wet. So, how do we deal with that? And how does it shape our clinical approach? And how do we look after ourselves? when doing that work so so that you know you can't you can't pull the two apart i think the two kind of go hand in hand we look after the staff so that they'll look after themselves and patients better but we also need that direct modeling and support of how to look after patients well in that preventative way
0: yeah i definitely think it's very important to make sure that the staff are also healthy in terms of their mental health as well because if they are not in a great place they're not going to work as effectively just that's just how the world is therefore we need to make sure they're in the best condition to provide the best care they can to the patients and when you were speaking about the sort of trauma the er ed versus icu i think Mm -hmm. there is a difference there in that the ed are they've got trauma coming in and they're they're dealing with it for, they're dealing with the people for a very short time. Where in ICU, you could yeah. have been, you could have had that patient for five or six months and they lose them. And you can't care for someone like that and not get invested in that care. And so I think it's, it's a different type of trauma and I think it it, it can be more ingrained and in that although that, you know, in an emergency, you're, you're they are working very hard to preserve it. it it's you know, finite short term where where there's so much of you getting put into that one case in icu that are very different
1: yeah you're right the figure that's often quoted is you know 75% of icu patients are in and out within 72 hours so there there is that quick turnover that goes alongside it you're quite right then there are the patients that get a bit stuck on the icu stuck on the icu is is quite short term in terms of you, probably define it as seven days or more but actually in seven days you can make quite a connection to someone's story but i also i I work in a 35 bedded icu so a bit bigger than is you know tertiary referral center etc but we at any one time we can have a group of kind of five or six patients that have been there at least a month and you know our our usual rule of thumb is if they've stayed a month they'll stay for six so we know that we get these patients that we we can become really attached to and really really care about what happens to them. I think there's also something of some people choose because they've had those relationships and then they've seen it go wrong for that person either they haven't survived they've passed away or they've survived but not particularly well they've survived to disability and and to kind of a really limited life staff then learn to detach themselves and not invest as much in the next person it's a, it's a natural psychological defense mechanism it protects you and you you become sort of more and more detached and then that's that kind of root of burnout really is is you know the more you detach over time the less you kind of care about the work but also the less almost the work feeds you in a way I've got a little phrase I don't know if you've interviewed Matt Morgan but Matt Morgan up until really recently worked with me in Cardiff and he's a good mate and it's a privilege to have worked with him but me and him came up with this term which was burn in rather than burn out which he kind of we talked about when he was writing his book it's like leaning into a patient's story really getting to know a patient actually is not going to end up slapping you in the face and making you feel like you wish you hadn't but actually it makes you better it makes you more connected to the work and it's more protective and i think that's you know if there's anyone who's a health professional who's listening to a podcast now i'd really kind of recommend they they take that away actually is it's it's not harmful to care and invest in your patients. In fact, it's pretty protective because it brings the best out of you. But at the same time, you know, you don't don't want to be going home with the patient and kind of giving them your phone number and saying, call me 24 hours a day, etc. We have to keep a little bit of a professional boundary, of course. But actually, that investment in, in patients can be quite good for us. But that said, it doesn't mean that it doesn't take a chunk out of us when it goes wrong for that patient.
0: I think there's also a kind of rationale that if you're sort of closing off to the, the patient, you're kind of creating an expectation of a negative outcome,
1: which mm-hmm. will feed
0: a negative outcome. Yeah, I think yeah. I think that's, that's also part of it. If you have a positive outlook, then you're more likely to be able to cope with a negative outcome, even if it is a surprise outcome, yeah. than if you keep feeding the negative outcome, you're not getting not getting any regeneration from successes you're only getting pulled down by negatives and so you're you're just you're just cutting little bits off you you're dying by a thousand cuts rather than a single blow and I think yeah. I think sometimes people don't trust in how well they can cope with things mm. and, and I think they often forget that particularly in the ICU if you if you look to your left or look to your right there's another person that's dealing with pretty much the same thing as you and that you're not I don't want to say you're not special but you're not unique there, there's plenty of people if you're if you're having trouble or struggling there, there's a whole team there that that knows what's going on and I think sometimes people particularly if they've went into that that protective shell mode of of um sort of shielding themselves they forget that actually there's a lot of people here who understand what's going on and if I say I'm, I'm struggling or whatever will help even if even if there's not an ICU psychologist in the in the unit just by how the ICU world works that's uh, pretty much how it'll how it'll be you know there are it is a team and I think ICU is much more of a, a team sport than then, then in than in other places where where there's very very rigid defined doctors do this nurses do that uh, and it's very siloed um, and and everybody's role is this and in an ICU it's a lot less rigid in those sorts of things and it's better I think other parts of the hospital could learn a lot from from this and that it leads to a lot better sort of delivery of care and outcomes and that everyone feels a bit more appreciated and a bit less of a a peg in a hierarchy. I don't know what you feel about that.
1: I guess you know the obvious thing to say about ICU is it's staff heavy so there's plenty of staff around you know the standards are you should have like seven nurses employed for every bed you have you know one doctor on the rota for every eight beds but actually to cover that you need you know for a five-bedded unit you need three or four doctors whereas a ward you'd have one nurse for kind of beds etc so so it kind of the nature because it's so acute in ICU and you know you need those staff with eyes in the back of the head to keep the patients safe and well but it does then mean you get lots and lots of opportunities for team interaction And I have to say, you haven't done it for many years now. That's the buzz, actually. That's the thing that's almost addictive about working in ICU is you kind of feel this sort of strength of connectedness and and teamwork. And I, I do think other areas don't have that and would benefit from that kind of flattened hierarchy, definitely. But that sort of sense of the whole team working together, I mean, reality is 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 funding. You know, they're not gonna staff wards better than they do, unfortunately. You know, that those kinds of things are there. It's a shame that there isn't such a multidisciplinary and, and sort of therapies approach on other wards. You know, ICU really drives it. And I have to say that the slightly unfortunate thing that it does for ICU is it makes the rest of the hospital view us a bit differently. So quite often they view us as having lots of money, lots of staff, and we're fussing over a very small number of patients. And so there can be this real discrepancy between what the organisation's trying to do and how it views us and what we're trying to do. And we can kind of come off just a little bit histrionic because we don't mean to but we're very in the moment now there's loads of us big boys and but there's five patients so you know if you're you've got someone where you're going well I've got ambulances sat outside the emergency department and I've got people saying we we need a psychologist in the ICU which one am I going to look at first actually i think that that's one of the hard things about working in icu we're so we we all love it we're so passionate we're quite driven quite excitable individuals sometimes we could do with moderating our our volume so that we're heard a bit better but we can't help it because we love it and we love that kind of teamwork and we love that kind of togetherness and other places don't have that privilege and I think it we should remember that I think sometimes in in an ideal world of a well-funded NHS, yeah, there should be more teams and in an ideal modern NHS, the BAM five nurse is just as important as the consultant if not more important but you know, I think that that's new medical training and new nursing training means that medics are more open to co-working and nurses are braver at stating their values. So it is shifting over time, but you do still get the occasional more uh, traditional way of doing things.
0: I'm going to comment on a, f- a few things. One, I have heard when speaking to to ICU nurses, you just have one patient, which always. Always gets me quite annoyed. That okay. one person you're controlling every function right. of the body, which is quite a, mm. an intense job in terms of doctors and nurses and the hierarchy and and their disbelief that they are superior rather than colleagues. Try running a hospital without nurses and see how successful that goes. And yeah. I think the other reason that ICU staff tend to be louder is that they're speaking for patients who can't speak who are completely Mm. unable to represent themselves and that's a very hard place to fight for and they're 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 speaking for patients who have died and for patients who have been left with extreme disabilities who can't necessarily fight for themselves so I think I think yes there is a loudness to the ICU community but I think for a long time it was sort of underappreciated in that, oh, you send them into ICU, they save some, they lose some, that's the game. And I think that we have kind of moved on and that ICU needs to be allowed to represent. Actually, we do a lot. <laughs> and we, I, I think in my case, you know, pull, pulled out a miracle, it pulled out a thing that shouldn't shouldn't have happened. Really, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be here from how bad it was. So I think we kind of forget that what the ICU is, is taking the very sickest people, the people that the rest of the hospital can't manage, and saving quite a lot of them. And yeah, yeah, okay, that costs a lot of money because lots of staff, lots of machines, lots of drugs, lots of doctors, you know, it's, it's yes, it's going to cost a lot of money. But if we start placing monetary values on lives... We start to get into a very, very dangerous place, and that's very against what the NHS was set up for, and it's sort of ethos of of what it is. And we're we I've strayed a little away from from the psychology, but um yeah there's there's, there's some, some ICU needs to be allowed because the people can't they can't speak for themselves, and it's one of the reasons I became a patient advocate was I had very horrific things happened to me. I had very severe ARDS, uh, sepsis. I had a lot of bad things happen to me. And I was very fortunate in that from my ICU outcome, I didn't get a lot of things long term that affected me. So I'm in a very good position to talk about the very bad Mm. and still able to talk about it. That was always my, Mm. I have to talk for the people who can't. And um, yeah, that's a very the yes. important thing about ICU is that it's very difficult from all angles and people need to... And I think the pandemic has slightly helped in people's understanding of what ICU is and that films are no longer the only source of, of what ICU is. Or oh, I was in a coma for six months and now I'm just standing yeah. up and walking as soon as I wake up, which <laughs> really, really aggravates yeah. me. Because it creates this cultural... Belief, and I think it's it, it's hurt a lot of recoveries, and that people see you struggling, and they go, mm. "Well, it's just ice. You you were just sleeping. That was that was the one that that really, it really got me. You were just sleeping for three weeks. What you, what's wrong with you?" That's okay.
1: Yeah, media doesn't help with that stuff, does it? Or I I guess popular media and and films. I mean, my particular one is, you know, someone will be in an ICU bed on a film and I'll turn to my husband and I'll say, you do realise that the nurses don't sit behind a glass screen staring at a monitor really relaxed. You do realise it doesn't look that calm, don't you? That's not where I work. You do know that. And I, I think that that's the thing is it is a good thing with the pandemic people understand the impact of an ICU stay I think in an odd kind of way the, the public have got um healthily scared of becoming an ICU patient and that's a good thing for ICU and it's a good thing for survivors one you don't want to end up in there but two you can appreciate the people that have and how touch and go that has been and I think the thing I always say to people out, outside of an ICU is is when you read in the paper and their condition is critical, that's us. When, when life is on a knife edge, that's us and I think it does lend us to being a bit more loud and maybe a bit more dramatic in how we kind of describe things because it is dramatic actually to be perfectly honest and I quite like your kind of advocacy for us being loud and proud and you know not holding back but I guess the other thing I would say just to kind of link back to, to your recovery and other patient recovery I think I have seen the problem being that ward staff maybe have been influenced by that media as well. So you go and see a patient post-ICU on the ward and their cup of tea is like too far from them when actually when you saw them on the ICU last week, you could barely get them to hold the big fat kind of whiteboard marker for them to write down a few words for you and and that discrepancy is is massive I think and that understanding of what someone's been through is massive and I think that's that's a key area for us to to think about you describe that downstream I think we we in ICU have a responsibility to help with the downstream but also enable and educate the downstream I think we can't do all the work because you know you go to the ward and the Next person comes. We've got to still do our jobs. But I think there are a bunch of us now who are really trying to say, hold on, you get all of that intensity, all of that care, and then you go to a ward and it's all taken away. You know, where's the aftercare package, really? Where's the potential for rehabilitation? But also, where are we in helping those ward staff to understand just, you know, you weren't sleeping for three weeks? It's a bit worse than that and actually what does that look like and what should they expect and how can they enable you and help you to feel safe on that next kind of leg of your journey really the thing that I've found over the years with our kind of ICU steps group is then that family reaction of yeah, yeah I saw all the trauma of what you've been through what while, while you were sleeping in inverted commas but actually you look well now, so I really would just want you to spring back into all the duties you were doing before, and just you know, be a be a dad, be a brother, go play football, whatever it is. And actually, people not realizing what what is going on kind of internally in people's bodies, even though externally they they look like they're fully functioning. So I, I think there's there's still so much work to be done in terms of understanding. And education. And you know, you mentioned sepsis. Sepsis is a big one as well. Big, bigger than heart disease. And yet, why do not not many people know that word at all? Yeah.
0: yeah. I think I think there's maybe a slight better aspect to the way my hospital is constructed and that the HDU and the ICU are separated. And that you're basically going in your unit from the ICU where everybody's intense, lots of action, lots of Everything's done straight out to cold ward, where they might have one ICU patient a month, and they are—they don't really understand where. I got shocked into HDU of getting slowly used to outside of the ICU environment, that slightly lesser, in well less intense care, but certainly in terms of my physical rehabilitation, very on it. Physios, when the physios weren't about, there was the nurses were doing phys- uh, like. The physical therapy with me so in terms of that aspect it was brilliant but there was a void of understanding of what the psychological issues were and I think that might that might not have been there in the ICU if they were together because you know people would know that that's that's what went mm-hmm. on but I think yeah there's 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 some aspects but we now have a what do we have? We have a, it's a rehabilitation team. Where I think it's there's there's at least one nurse, but I think there's three in it who see patients all the way out and make sure that they know about the follow-up clinic. And I think that's really important as well because I was, was that 18 weeks, 18 weeks in hospital completely? Three in ICU, three in HDU, living in hospital. That sounds right. No, 12, 12 in hospital, something yep. like that. I caught swine flu while I was in the infectious disease ward so that was why it was so oh. long in my my tail but the the nurse will see you because if you're 18 weeks and you've been 10 12 weeks in in ward you're suddenly feeling very left out and, le- and forgot about and it that mm. can be quite bad as well for your mental health just feeling like you've been essentially abandoned which is is a thing that quite often mm. it's patients feel they feel that they've went from the hospital where there's always someone looking after you there's always someone who'll have a, a line to the doctor or whoever to be able to deal with a problem and then you come out into into home when you're well but you're not well and you're good you're expected to cope with the world yeah. it's quite hard physically although by that point i was relatively physically okay and very un-okay in terms of my mental health. I think I was like a ticking time bomb. So in May, I think I was in, mm-hmm. so I was discharged in April, May. So May, I was in a, a denial state, is what I, I I think I was. I thought, physically fine, I'm super duper. I will be fine as a, as, a, as a go, nothing wrong with me. And then the day I came back to get, medically checked to attend the post ICU clinic. I had my first panic attack and I thought I was dying. I was like, what is going on here? Uh, Why why am I feeling like this? And then uh, I went, went to the clinic and I started back college between that first panic attack and the clinic. So I was having four or five panic attacks a day. Yeah, wow. my, my trigger points were the hospital and college. So I regularly go to hospital, I regularly go to college at that point. So I was pretty much in a panic state for, for most of the time. And I saw the clinic and the clinic had the psychologist in it who identified my issues and unfortunately couldn't refer from that clinic. I had to ask my GP to refer me through the conventional pathways, which is, which is a, a, a silliness. Um, nice, yeah. <laughs> an expert needs somebody else to refer them into the expert service of their field. Seems silly, but whatever. And then it took to, I think it was May, then it, April, May? No, it was more than that. It took about eight months to get treatment.
1: Very typical,
0: yeah. You know, I, I was having full PTSD, panic attacks, And there was periods of time there where I didn't think I was going to make it, that it was very dark and that Mm. it just seems like I got into that state or I got as bad as I did because the problems weren't identified. Because if the problems were identified sooner, even if there's an eight month wait, that means that the eight month wait has started earlier and just, it seems dangerous. To me is that it, it, it seems dangerous not to have psychologists in icu it seems yeah fatal that there, there will be people who do not make it to treatment because it is too bad i i don't know if i can yeah. explain it powerfully enough but in my icu experience i believed that I was being tortured, cut open, waterboarded, put in freezers to freeze. I believed in those three weeks that had passed, that seven years had passed, that I'd been tortured for seven years constantly. Now people say, oh, it was all in your head. Yeah, well, your brain is what decides what's real and what's not. If If I was tortured for seven years straight, I would have quite a lot of problems
1: exactly the way to kind of explain it to people is i i think the mistake that people make is that they think you dreamt it and if you have a bad dream and wake up the next morning fair enough you might be a bit shook up and you might feel a bit weird for the next day but it's over it's done with you're not traumatized but you haven't had a bad dream you have been living in a dream world and that world has been your reality. And I I mean, to me, it's almost like I quite like films and things like that. It's almost like you're in Inception or something like that. And the suggestions have been made to your mind and they're real enough because your mind makes it so. And I think, you know, the, the trauma focused therapies that lots of psychologists do kind of with post ICU patients is they what we do when we work with trauma is we take the kind of touchstone or the worst bit as the entry point to help people manage what we do is we take that delirium memory as the touchstone and we work from there because that is your reality that is what terrorized you that is what your mind believed and I think that's the really really important thing to emphasize because I think people outside of ICU just think oh you were just having a you know like a bad trip kind of thing if only If only it were just two days of a bad drug trip. But actually, let's look at people who took lots of LSD and had many bad drug trips and how many years of PTSD they suffered with it. And, you know, if you want to make that comparison. And I think that's the thing for people to really, truly understand. That said, I have quite a few examples in my experience of meeting someone who has said, I remember One particular example, he said to me, the doctor is the key master. He holds all the secrets to me escaping this torture world. And actually, instead of going, no, what are you talking about? It's all in your head. I told the doctor and I said go to him as the key master and explain how he's going to leave this world safely and tell him that this world is he's not going to stay here for too long and he was like you are all right then and he sat down and he said you are right I am the key master but also you are in charge of instructing me as your key master how to escape this world and so you kind of it sounds a bit tongue-in-cheek and silly as we say it but there's something about you can't you can't get the delirious, hallucinating, delusional patient to snap out of it and come into our world. It's just not possible. It's a temporary brain kind of fog and confusion. So the best thing we can do is step into your world, just like we would with people who are experiencing actual psychosis. And of course, delirium used to be Called ICU psychosis. Personally, I think it's the better label, even though it's a bit archaic. It kind of describes it better. Or people who are experiencing a dementia, you know, with someone with dementia wouldn't expect any other people with either a temporary or a permanent brain affliction, that it's all in their head, you know, kind of way. But it is, it is that patient's experienced reality.
0: Hi, this is Mark here from the future in the edit. Um, we had some technical difficulties recording this episode, so unfortunately, it has ended any sort of cliffhanger. But uh, on a positive note, we're gonna be—I have been able to get uh, Doctor Julie Highfield to agree to record a second episode or part with me which will finish off this and hopefully move more into the delirium where we both have a passion which will be a very exciting discussion and I'm very looking forward to it. Um, Unfortunately due to technical issues that we had during the recording, um, bits of this discussion have had to be taken out and we weren't able to fully end the discussion because of the disruption of those technical issues. But hopefully those will be resolved for the next episode and I hope to do a quick turnaround after the next recording session and get it out as quick as possible so that you don't have to wait very long for the concluding part of this discussion. Um, I think that this was a really great discussion. I think there was a lot of very important things were said during this episode and I really hope that you enjoyed them and I really hope... Uh, that you can share the the podcast with anyone else that you think would would enjoy it. Um, I'm trying to get as many people uh, listening as I can because um, it's very hard to get a patient's point of view over in the world of healthcare. It's very difficult. So if anyone's listening, if you can help me out, if you want to contact me or uh, for recommendations of guests or subjects or anything like that you can catch me on twitter uh, at mark tom t-h-o-m hudson that's my private account or the podcast account which is at icu underscore life or you can email me which is icu dot life dot and dot recovery at gmail.com And I'm really looking forward to hearing from you. Anybody wishes to contact me, feel free. Um, And hopefully the next episode will go off without any problems. And I'll be able to bring you a much fuller, much more in-depth discussion with a greater scope on delirium, which is both mine and Dr. Highfield's passion area. And thank you for listening. And I really hope that you enjoyed this. And uh, I really appreciate all the continued support and lessons from everybody that does. So thank you from me to you.